we've been going through Leviticus all semester, and we have we've made it to the end. Yeah, which you maybe you didn't think you'd actually make it. Uh, there's times I didn't either. Uh, and the whole theme we've been saying is that in Leviticus, God draws near. He shows up in a visible way in the tabernacle uh, uh, and draws so near that you realize He wants to be with His people. But that's a problem. Namely us and our sin and this barrier. But in Leviticus you see that He overcomes every obstacle to be with us. Well, here's how Leviticus essentially finishes. This big statement about God drawing near and what it does. Because this happens a lot of times in history. It happens in movies. Uh, You've seen the new Avengers. Uh, It happens with Thanos. I'm not going to ruin anything for you. But when when someone of power comes near, it always forces you in one or two directions. Right? Think back to World War II. When uh, Nazi Germany, Hitler, take over France, conquer France. What happens? There's a moment where you have to decide you're either going to submit to and be with uh, Nazi Germany and be his ally, or you're going to say committed to the allies themselves and you will be considered a rebel. The one thing you could not do is stay neutral in France. You had to go one way or the other. And tonight what we see is this thing, is blessings and curses that come from God... Because if God draws near in His power and His authority and in His love, God is not like Hitler. He's the opposite. He's good and He's full of life. But as He draws near, it really does do something. It forces you in one or two directions. The one, it forces you to be with Him and it be a place of blessing or against Him and it actually be a place of cursing. The one thing you cannot do with the God of the Bible is just be apathetic and neutral. That's it. And so that's how Leviticus ends. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Lord, uh, thank you for Leviticus. Thank you for uh, the glimmers that it shows us of a God who, who wants to be near us. Um, that really is astounding because there's a lot of times uh, that I don't even want to be near myself. I would like to change who I am, get away from myself, but you want to be with us. And so I pray uh, that you'd speak words of truth to us tonight. Uh, but that tr- truth would be coded uh, in the grace of Jesus so that we could receive it uh, with humility and be changed. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Alright, here is Leviticus 26 starting in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I'll give you your, your rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their, yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the great harvest, and the great harvest shall last to the time of your sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I'll give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I'll remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall cast your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat the old store long kept and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I'll walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves and I've broken the bars of your yoke and have made you walk erect. But if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments, 
but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I'll visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I'll discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I'll break the pride of your power, and I'll make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase. And the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Then honestly, the next 19 verses are more curses. And then verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me, and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. The land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbath while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations that I might be their God. I am the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. All right, this whole chapter centers around, you probably saw this word a couple of times, this idea of a covenant. So we're going to look at what is the covenant. Then we're going to look at the tension of the blessings and curses of the covenant. And then the final word of the covenant itself. First, the covenant. You probably saw this five or six times. The only way to make sense, I would suggest, of these blessings and cursings is to understand the complexity of when God draws near, He calls His relationship with His people a covenant. Right? He says if people disobey, it's breaking the covenant. He says later on, I will remember my covenant with Abraham, with Isaac. And covenant, it's not a, it's not a word that we use very often, but it's... And honestly, there's, there's not a better word for it because it describes or, or defines the way that God relates to His people. It's by a covenant. And that's important, right? We talk about this all the time, but any relationship, you have to know a definition so you know how to relate. And this is the struggle, right? Some of you don't know if you're friends or if you're dating or what this is going on, and it creates confusion. And God is saying, the way that I'm going to relate to you, the way I'm going to define it is by a covenant, So what is a covenant? Here's Tim Keller's definition. You ready? A covenant is a relationship that is more loving and more intimate than merely a legal relationship. Yet, it's more binding and enduring and accountable than just a personal relationship. So a covenant relationship, more intimate than just a legal relationship, but more binding and more enduring than just a personal relationship. It's both. Think about those two, right? On the one hand, we all have legal relationships. You have one with Ole Miss, with uh, uh, the bursar. So there's this agreement, and it's legal. And if you don't pay your agreed tuition, then the consequences get enacted. And I don't know, you probably get kicked out of school or something. But honestly, 
You don't spend a lot of time with the bursar. You probably don't care for him or her very much. And nor does he or she care for you. It's just legal. And, and on the other side, there's just personal relationships. And a lot of you have acquaintances or friendships at all in this that, it, that they're personal to some degree or, or, or other, which means there's mutual care, there's mutual love. But there's no real legal accountability. Thus, some of you have already experienced how college can feel like an ever-evolving changing of friendships. The people you were friends with last semester no longer are there. Because ultimately, a change of friendship, there is no stated penalties, right? But in a covenant, the way to be in a relationship with the Lord, it works in this stunning blend of law and love, of high stipulations and incredible intimacy together. Because it's legal, it's accountable, it's, it's entered into voluntarily by God, but it's also amazingly intimate and loving. The closest relationship we have to a covenant like that, that's both legal and intimate, would probably be marriage, or you could even say a relationship of, of a uh, parent with children. Right? Think about both those relationships. There are legal binding things that happen. I cannot just abandon my kids tomorrow. Right? But there's also something deeply personal there. And we're bound by both of those. And if that is just a glimmer of the covenant that God has with us, then what that means is that that the relation itself, the legality of it, the stipulations are higher than we could imagine. But also the intimacy and the love and the ferocity of that is also higher than you could imagine. So a covenant that God makes, it's more enduring, has higher terms than you think, but it's more loving and more intense than you also would imagine. It's both. And the law actually creates the context for his committed love to you. So, you made it through the difficult part. Leviticus 26 sets before us, first of all, that God draws near to us in the context of a covenant, which is deeply personal, but also highly legal with commands and accountability. So, what do we do with the blessings and the cursings? Right? Feel the tension of them. Because in verses 3 through 45, we didn't even read them on, he lays out, if you want to say, the stipulations of the relationship. And he does it with utter clarity. That doesn't mean it's easy. The concepts are simple. And it's actually very loving because he's treating his people like mature moral agents, telling them everything. Saying, if you do this, there will be blessing. If you don't do this, there will be cursing. And so he is very clearly saying to live in reference with God, to love Him, to trust Him, is the way of eternal life. Because God is life. But to walk against God, who is life, is to choose the pathway of darkness and death. And so here's what happens, right? In verse 3 through 13, there's these very practical, I would say, blessings that God says. And especially if you think about an agrarian society, these blessings that God gives would be a very tangible way that you could, you could know that God's unseen favor is upon you, right? What would that look like? What could be a tangible thing that you'd see? Well, he promises good harvest of crops, peace from enemies, lots of kids, and enjoying his presence. 
If you, you look at verse 13, it says, People who obey, they walk erect with their, with their head held high. Because it's this picture of freedom and security, not bent over in self-condemnation. The blessing of obedience. And verse 14 through 39 describes what happens if the covenant is not upheld. If people walk against the Lord, curses are experienced. And it's pretty much the opposite of the blessings. Right? In an agrarian society, what would be the tangible way to, to, uh, to demonstrate that I'm walking contrary to the Lord, who is life? Well, I experience things that are destructive and full of death. And so instead of good harvest, he said there'll be drought. Instead of peace from enemies, there's being cursed and conquered by enemies. Instead of life abundant on land, there's devastation and destruction, and you'll be scattered among the nations. And so what God is saying is, I am clearly a God of justice. Because I'm good and holy, God is saying He cannot bless disobedience. He cannot wink at guilt and just and just wipe it under the under the carpet. So this is the terms of the covenant. That the binding, accountable nature of God with his relationship to his people says that you that obedience to his law is the way of life. And to walk against it is the way of death. And look, when you hear that. First of all, there can be kind of one or two reactions, both I would suggest that are that I'll actually miss it. One is you think, okay, I guess I better buck up and get my life together. Because the way to be right with God is I've got to start a bank. But that would be reading Leviticus 26 apart from everything else that has been said. And twice God says, remember, I'm the God who delivered you out of slavery. He's talking to his people. These are his. Not because they were good, not because they obeyed, but because he delivered them out of slavery. They are his people by sheer grace. And the only way to be on God's good side is not by your effort, but by God's effort. So first of all, it is not saying, obey and God will like you. Impossible. But the other error to make is then to say, well, I guess it doesn't matter how I live. That's awesome. Because that is also foolish. Because then what we're saying is my actions, even as a Christian or with Jesus, do not disrupt anything. But that's not honoring the covenant either. Because follow this reasoning. If the Lord has created you, if He designed you, That means His commands for you are simply a manifestation of His goodness and how He designed you to function, how He designed you to flourish. So, my lungs that God gave me have a biological design. I can either honor that to my own flourishing or I can ignore it and feel destruction. So if I go underwater and I try to breathe, my lungs will experience destruction. Because they were not designed for water, but for air. Right? So too, the way God has designed us to live. So yes, on the one hand, it is foolish to have a direct one-on-one connection of your experiences in this life with simply how well you're obeying. The world's broken. It's way too complex. 
However, God's law is good for you. It's the, it's the way that you're designed. And my fear is that some of you in this room, you think that you can live against God's law for four years in college and it not affect you. But you're bumping up against reality itself. You're bumping up against His holiness and His goodness. And I fear some of you make no connection between the emptiness that you feel every week and the relationships that are around you that are filled with hurt or shallowness and even your own personal misery. And you do not connect that with the way that you're actually living. Because there are consequences to be experienced if you oppose the God of this world. And some of you... it's subtle, and you cover it in all kinds of niceness and southern charm. But deep down, you really don't think it matters how you live because God is a forgiving God. But those things that are coming into your life are telling you to trust His goodness. And so on the one hand, no, it's not the way to be right with God. But the way that you live can absolutely disrupt your life. See, if God drawing near means that He's more intimate than we think, then of course, of course disobedience brings consequences. The closer a relationship you have with someone, the more hurtful things, uh, things become that you do against them. Right? Are there circumstances that can actually disrupt your relationship with your closest friend or your boyfriend? Of course. What about in marriage? Of course. If I was to have sex with another woman, or if I was to abuse Liza in some way, guess what? Liza is free to terminate the relationship. And she would be right to do so. And I would be end up in jail and right to do so. And if that's the case in our earthly relationships, how much more will we bump up against the character of God Himself? And so on the one hand, when you read the blessings and the cursing, it is jolting. And it begins to make you think, well, it sounds like my relationship with God is dictated by my performance. It seems like this covenant is conditional upon how I live. I want you to feel that tension. But then you have what so much of the book of Leviticus is about and what verse 40 through 45 says because it says God's love for you and God's grace for you, it seems unconditional, right? Leviticus looks into the future and says, look, Israel's going to disregard me. It's going to end in misery and destruction. All that happens. But then then Leviticus speaks like God is like this father for whom no matter how rebellious his son gets, he can't quit loving him. Right? Verse 42, I'll remember my covenant. Verse 44, I will not spurn them. I will not destroy them utterly and break my covenant. I'm the Lord their God. And so at the very same time, in the same chapter, these verses point to another truth that the Lord of this universe loves His people and He's dead bent on blessing His people no matter what they do. That God is this God who is rich in mercy and He loves people who want to run away from Him and don't care how they're living and they want nothing to do with Him because He's that full of grace. That on the other hand, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past looks like, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how much you struggle with sin after you're a Christian, God is saying, I'm not going to quit on you. 
I'll never stop loving you. And so Leviticus 26 basically brings Leviticus to a close and it leaves you with this tension that you're supposed to feel. Because you begin asking this question, okay, is God holy, just, and good? And so He will punish all sin and will bless righteousness. It seems that way. Or is God rich in mercy, overwhelming in forgiveness, and abounding in grace so that He rewards those who don't deserve it? It also seems like He's that. Or, let's put it in different ways. Are the blessings of the covenant conditional according to how a person lives? Or are the blessings of the covenant unconditional because it doesn't matter how you live? Because both seem to be there. Which is it? And actually, you will find that tension all throughout the Old Testament. You can go to Judges 2, and it's almost back-to-back verses. Judges 2, verse 1 says this, I will never break my covenant with you. I will never forsake you. You know what verse 3 says? If you disobey me, I will not not bless you. I will curse you. How can both of those be true? Michael Wilcock, this commentator, here's here's, here's the way he puts it. It's almost as if God is saying, I've sworn to bless you, and I've also sworn not to bless a disobedient people. This is what you've done to me. How am I going to solve this situation? I've promised to bless you. And God cannot break a promise. But He will not and cannot bless disobedient people. That would be unjust. It's against His character. So this is the tension that Leviticus leaves you with. God is holy, just, and good. So He will bless. He will punish all sin, and He will bless all righteousness. It seems that our that our uh, our covenant is bound with conditions of our performance. Or is God rich in mercy, abounding in grace, and the and the covenant is unconditional? Which is it? You know what the answer is? Yes, it's both. It's actually not an either or in the Bible. It's a both and. How can that be? Man, because the final word of the covenant. This is the tension going everywhere in the Bible. How can God bless people who deserve cursing? Because I re- look, re- look, we talk about forgiveness and grace all the time at RUF. Almost as if it's just an assumed fact, but God is not good if He doesn't punish sin, if He doesn't punish evil. He's simply not good, and we know that. The only people who deny that are people in a philosophy classroom who have not experienced real evil. If you've experienced real evil, you know goodness has to punish evil. But here's what's worse. If you start realizing the the stipulations of God's covenant and you know yourself at all, you have to say, where is my hope? There's not a day in my life that I've ever lived up to God's standard of loving holiness. Never. My My best Monday falls short. So how in the world can God be just and gracious at the same time? Everything is pushing you to God's final word. Where God draws even nearer than He does in Leviticus. Where you find out that that word is actually a person. And He draws so near that He takes on flesh in the person of Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, He comes into this broken and warped world And for 33 years of his life, he is the only human being to ever walk this earth and perfectly fulfill God's covenantal requirements. He's always loving God, always loving people, 
always trusting his Father. Every day, every second, he obeys God's statutes and commandments perfectly. He's the covenant keeper. But watch his life. There is little sign in Jesus' life of covenant blessing, though he's living it. Instead, from Jesus' birth until death, he starts wearing the signs of covenant curses. He's poor. His life is filled with suffering. He's known as the suffering servant. He's rejected by friends. He's finally overtaken and conquered by his enemies first, which are the religious leaders of the day. Then it's the Roman Empire. Until his life ends on a cross. Which in the Old Testament, which William read for us, is the sign of cursing. And he cries out at the end of his life, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means the one who fulfilled the covenant perfectly is taking the final and ultimate curse. Darkness. Separation from God. What is happening? Galatians 3.13, you ready? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Ready? By becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's a strange phrase. What does it mean that Jesus is becoming a curse? It's the language of Leviticus, isn't it? He's taking the covenant curses. Jesus is being treated as if he's a covenant breaker. As if he was evil. As if he was addicted to porn. As if he was addicted to cocaine. As if he'd fill in the blank. He gets treated as if he was that. But he's the only person who ever lived and actually deserved God's blessings. Which means Jesus is getting treated as if he's you. And as if he's me. But man, that's not it. Because you know what the next verse says? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Jesus becomes a curse so that a blessing can come to you. More language of Leviticus, right? When you become a Christian, when you receive Christ as your substitute, it's not just that your curse goes to Jesus, though that's amazing. His blessing that he earned by living a perfect life comes to you. So that all the blessings in verse, what was that, 3 through 13, that Jesus deserved actually come to you. And all the curses of verse, uh, whatever, 22 through 40, 40, that we have built up go to Jesus. It's the great exchange. So you've got, um, my friend Mike Mike Ford, uh, I've heard him talk about this. I think this fits, kind of a silly illustration. You almost got to imagine yourself walking through an airport, very public place, uh, uh, and, you know, you're going through security and you've got this big suitcase and you hope nobody finds out what's in it. And there's a gentleman behind you and both of you put your suitcases on as it goes through, this, through the, uh, you know, the x-ray machine. A big alarm goes off. And you think, oh dear. As so they pull out both bags because they're not sure who's is who and they set them down and everybody's watching, right, because the sirens are going off. Your family's there, your friends. And they bring you and this other gentleman uh, to look at the bags. And first they open your bag. And as they open up in front of everybody, out spills magazines filled with pornography, drugs, handgun, I don't know, anything else. And as you see that, you think, well, this is it. You know, your, your family is aghast. <laughs> the uh, security is kind of reaching for the handcuffs. Now, they're not sure whose suitcase it is. And then they open the other one. And out spills, uh, you know, a Bible, uh, 
Chick-fil-A, uh, uh, you know, uh, a Nobel Peace Prize, uh, all these thank you letters from all these people because you've, you've changed their life. And so, and so the security guard, you know, as they're starting to, to crowd up and, and make the rest, they say, whose bag is this? And you hang your head in shame and you're about to say mine and you hear this man say, it's mine, it's mine. And so they go and they arrest that man and they take him and he bears all the shame and all the scorn and you get the suitcase with Chick-fil-A and, and, uh, and bless. This is what happens is that Jesus literally takes your baggage and takes your place so that you get everything that he earned. Which means the covenant that we have with God is absolutely conditional. He's just and holy. But here's what's amazing. Is God in Jesus takes responsibility for your portion of the covenant. Isn't that good news? So many of you are tired because of the responsibility that's been placed on you in these last few weeks. There is a God who takes your responsibility on Himself. And He lives the life you should have lived. And He bears the curses that we deserve. Which means the covenant is actually unconditional for you. Because He met the conditions. And He offers it to you at great cost to Himself, but free. It's a gift of grace. Look at Jesus. Truth and grace. Holiness and forgiveness. Justice and mercy. This is what it looks like. And so, you know, there, here, here's all in. There's, there's actually a wedding in like, I think it's about 14 days or something. Uh, Prince Harry is going to marry uh, Meghan Markle. Right? If, if you, any of you are kind of royal uh, wedding fans. Here's what you know. Uh, Meghan, this is kind of a first-time deal. Because Meghan comes from a divorced home. She's not British. She's American. She's a commoner. And she's actually biracial. And so as Prince Harry has dated her and actually proposed uh, to her, lots of stuff has happened. Actually, there's been racist comments that have been made. Uh, there's been a lot of hardship. But whatever, on May 18th, something's going to happen. When Prince Harry marries Meghan, you do realize status immediately changes. She will no longer be a commoner. She'll be royalty. All the riches of Prince Harry become hers. I guarantee you, well, at least to his face, no one will make racist comments anymore. All the blessings of the royal family, Meghan imparts. Why? Because someone loved her and united himself to her. And look, of course, coming from a broken home, being all biracial, all, there's nothing simple. That stuff's great. But when we think about our shame and our sin, man, when Jesus unites himself to you and me, he takes all of our stuff and gives us royalty. This is the way. And the way that that gets inside of you Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. That's what Leviticus keeps saying. Because what keeps you from relationship with God, it's your pride. It's your pride. It's a satanic lie that says you have to do it. Because that either means that you think you're good enough, or it means you're too far gone for His grace. And it's a lie. 
Jesus offers you a full, unconditional covenant because he met it all. You just have to receive it with empty hands, with a humble heart. And it is a satanic lie if somebody tells you you can outrun and outsend the grace of God in Jesus. You can't. And I'm telling you, seniors, when you leave this place, go to a church that is filled with the grace of Jesus. It's the only thing that will keep changing you. Until the day of Revelation 21 and 22, when you know what it says? The new heavens and new earth, you know how it describes it? Listen for the Leviticus words. When Jesus comes back, it'll be a place where there is no accursed thing because the blessing of the Lamb is there forever. Which means in Christ you will be, that's what we're about to sing, safe on Canaan's side and sing songs of praises. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Do you know this Jesus? It's an invitation. Let's pray.